Hey everyone, before this podcast begins, we want to tell you about some other arts-related podcasts you're going to love. They are The Conduit Music Podcast, Artsville, Gringo and the Man, Art World Horror Stories, and Not Real Art. On these action-packed podcasts, you'll hear experts talk about creativity, design, the music biz, the art world, visual art, American craft, Chicano art, street art, graffiti, and even stand-up comedy. So be sure to find and follow these great arts podcasts today. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast, where we celebrate creative culture and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Sourdough, coming to you from Crew West Studio in Los Angeles. Man, do we have a cool program for you all today. I have no doubt you will learn, grow, and be inspired by today's show. Before we get into our main event, I want to thank you for tuning in. Please be sure to like this episode and subscribe. Your likes and follows help ensure you won't miss any of our new shows, and it makes the algorithm gods happy, which helps us. So thanks for that. Also, be sure to visit our website, notrealart.com. Sign up for our newsletter to keep your finger on the pulse of everything we're doing here at Not Real Art for artists and art lovers. A lot of great stuff there. On the website, you'll see you'll get uh, free educational videos. You can sign up for our artist grant for the chance to receive $2,000. You can buy affordable original contemporary art through our partnership with Sugar Press. And you can become a supporter through Patreon if you want. So be sure to check out our website today for all the good, healthy stuff we got for you. Okay, friends. Today we have Andre Maripolsky. Andre is a legend here in L.A. And actually a legend, period. A uh, truly extraordinary artist, multidisciplinary with, I mean, a track record, a CV that goes back. I mean, his work is iconic and he has collaborated with all kinds of music stars and celebrities. I mean, you know, Bette Midler, Quincy Jones, Robin Williams, the Rolling Stones, MTV, Mattel, and even Elton John. In fact, one of the most iconic costumes Elton John ever wore. Andre Design, and he did it uh, for the performance there in uh, Central Park that was iconic for Elton, but Andre's CV goes on and on. He was an absolute artist. He has worked all over the world. He was born in Paris, son of a diplomat, sort of grew up uh, all over the world, but it has settled in L.A. and has made L.A. his home and is sort of parcel to L.A. now in his been doing some incredible work helping to rebrand LA with his iconic Viva LA program that uh, you'll hear a lot about. And of course, Andre is the kind of artist who can't help but embrace cutting edge technologies and techniques and uh, products and processes. And so, of course, he is embracing the world of NFTs right now and is doing some work launching his character, some of his characters. He's iconic for Well, he's got a lot of iconic characters, and he's sort of well-known for his sharks, which you'll hear us talk about, but he's turning his shark characters into NFTs, and we'll get into that, of course. He's been in museums all over the world, and he's just a brilliant, creative mind, and I just couldn't be happier, not just to call him uh, a colleague, but call him a friend, and I'm just so grateful that he's able to take time out of his busy schedule to come and chat with us today. So without further ado, let's get into this and hear from the one and only Andre Maripolsky. You, when it comes to art, my friend, are an expert, and that's why I wanted to have you on the podcast. Well, how Woo-hoo! fabulous is that? <laughs> 
Oh my God. It's long overdue, long overdue. I'm so grateful that we were able to get together today. Andre Maropolsky, my friend, you are a one of a kind world-class gentleman. Thank you. <laughs> Since we've known each other, you've been doing so much and now you're in the NFT space. My God. What, you know, mural buildings. Me that is, uh, oh my God. That is a, oh my God. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. So where do you want to start? I mean, because, you know, quite frankly, there's so much to talk about and so much going on. Yes. I'm yours. So much to talk about. Yes. Well, I mean, you know, it's like the whole point of this podcast is to help artists tell their stories and promote their work. And where your work is concerned, there's so much to promote. I mean, there's so much going on. Well, let's just start with the title of your whole dynamic, Not Real Art. That's a lot to deal with right there. What is and what isn't? (laughs) And who am I and who am I not? Do I fit this bill? Do I not? Yeah. Well, just like all art is subjective, all not real art is also subjective. You know, whatever that. A hundred percent. And, you know, it's been so interesting to watch people react to the name not real art over three years now because we now have like almost 190 episodes And what's been hilarious is that 99% of the time, artists get the joke immediately. They hear the name Not Real Art, they laugh, they get the joke, they understand that it's a bit of a critique, a bit of a commentary, it's a bit, you know, a bit of comedy. And then, you know, I say the name to very serious curators, very serious dealers, very serious "Mm." uh, uh, scholars, and they go, hmm, what do you mean, Not Real Art? I don't understand that. Right. (laughs) I would only assume that. But after a couple of years, I would assume artists would be kind of doing that as well. But, you know. (laughs) Well, you know, it's listen, right? We're all it's commentary on legitimacy, right? I mean, who is to say what is or isn't real? True. And if beauty is truly in the eye of the beholder, well, then isn't the beholder the one to say? Right. True. What they're looking at is speaking to them. Especially especially in I think in these days where the word fake has become, you know, so ubiquitous because of our, mm. you know, whatever. But, you know, who? who. Yeah. But that, yeah. Fake news. Yeah. Fake news. <laughs> <laughs> fake everything, man. Man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, bringing this back to the technology conversation. Listen, man, I mean, I'm all for technology that enhances our humanity and makes the world a truly better place and brings peace and prosperity and empathy and compassion to mankind. But it seems as though most of the technology or so much of the technology these days, unfortunately, oftentimes makes human beings redundant or sort of mitigates the humanity and divides us rather than actually bringing us together in a real way. It's all about unintended consequences, you know, and it's, this is all part of the ongoing information revolution that really, you know, started with the Gutenberg press. And I think that <laughs> yeah, since right. the Gutenberg press, the next biggest thing since the Gutenberg press is the internet and is the dispersion or dispersion of information, you know, so accessible yeah. for better or for worse, because Yep. It's never in human history, there's never been a more kind of democratic way of dispersing information. But that subjective information, as we found out, is also very subjective. And there's the rub. <laughs> because everything looks yes. equally official on that TV screen. You know, when you can compose, you know, the form on the TV screen, everything looks official. It looks believable. Mm. Well, I mean, the famous was it Orson Welles who famously right. did the radio right. show that was, you know, convinced people we were being invaded by aliens from another planet. Right. I mean, it's incredible. The context of something. The context and the power there, since it's radio, the power of the voice and the inflection mm. to create yes. a fake but believable world. <laughs> yeah, man. Creating that emotional connection. Yeah, right? exactly. So what isn't fake, well, speaking no, of what voice. isn't fake, is that I was born in Paris. Well, we can start from there. <laughs> that wasn't that. fake. I believe I was born there. Uh, I, I have a birth certificate to yeah. prove it. 
Well, we need evidence. Uh, evidence, uh, Andre. Uh, an interesting story. <laughs> we could start. Uh, this is funny because it's segues. Yes, let's go into, for it. Into, Jump my in. My first interesting story. Okay, so I was born in Paris. When George Bush Jr. got elected, you know, I thought that mm. was the end of the world. I mean, I thought Reagan, mm. when he got elected, that was the end of the world. I, they, <laughs> not quite, but we're getting close now, I think. We're getting closer. Mm. Mm. At any rate, so when George Bush got elected, I thought that was the end of the world. So I thought this was a time for me to investigate dual citizenship since I was born in Paris. Mm. And if I could get citizenship sure. in France, that means I could get a green card or whatever, and I could, you know, for all of Europe. So that sounded very, very good to me. So I went, I yeah. went to the consulate, and I actually found out, this is interesting. So I was born in Paris, but I was born in the American hospital in Paris, which is a world-class, uh, super famous hospital. Yeah. I don't know when it was founded, but before the World War I or something or after World War I, I don't know when it was actually founded, but it's mm. a very, very famous world hospital. That hospital, mm. the American hospital in Paris, turns out to be on American soil. <laughs> so it turns out I wasn't actually born in Paris. Oh. Yeah, exactly. They gotcha. They, they, they ripped you they off. They ripped me off. So I, I could go. I could become a French citizen. However... I would have to go through pretty much the same process that anybody would go through, which takes a couple mm -hmm. years, actually. And you have to live in France yeah. and all that kind of thing. But all my life, because mm -hmm. I grew up overseas mm -hmm. and in the State Department, basically kind of the State Department. And I always knew that American embassies were on American soil. That was all, yes, all right. embassies who knew, are on the who soil knew the hospital? of the countries <laughs> that they come from. Yeah, but yeah. I never heard of a like a retail place or, you know, like. <laughs> like a hospital, right, or anything right. like that, also being a soil of another country. So I thought that was uh, was disappointing, but it was very interesting. You know, a fun fact: the same applies to McDonald's. If you'd been born in a McDonald's, you also would have been an American. <laughs> bad joke. Bad joke. Are you, wait, wait, are you serious? <laughs> No, no. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I'm joking. No. I'm just saying, like, it's such a fascinating idea that a retail place would be American soil. The hospital, it's in the name American Hospital, but who would have thought? Yeah, right, man, absolutely. That, that indeed, it was like. No, that's yeah, a real. I'm yeah. just processing that concept, actually. Because if that could be, wow, McDonald's is like one of the biggest landowners, I think, in the world. Right. And in fact, talking about just, uh, just uh, McDonald's, I happened to catch that movie. A week or so ago, the bio of Roy Kroc or Ray Kroc or whatever. Oh, yeah, which right. Which is a really, really good movie. But one of his things, Michael Keaton, I believe. Yeah, Michael Keaton mm -hmm, played mm -hmm, him. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that made – that ended up making Roy Kroc and McDonald's so enormous was in the process of the development of McDonald's, the idea was put to him, which he grabbed onto, which was the land – it became about mm. not just the restaurants or the, what do you call the it? hamburgers. Yeah. Right. It became about the land that they were actually built on. And that's when that became his whole policy was to own the land that the units were built on by the main company, not by the, what do you call it? The, the, the people that get the, what's that word? The franchisees? The yeah, franchisees. The franchisee, yeah, 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 yeah. But by the company mm -hmm. owning the land that the franchisee was on. That was a... Ah, capitalism, capitalism. Well, big time. The biggest time, <laughs> yeah, with McDonald's. So anyway, from Paris to McDonald's, that's a good start. <laughs> so how many years did you live in Paris uh, before, and where did you move after Paris? Well, I, I lived in Paris for the first two and a half years of my life, and which I say that within those first two years, I got Picasso, and I got Matisse, and I got all those guys. Because my father is an artist, and those were all artists that really influenced him big time. So I was schlepped mm -hmm. to every museum all, all my growing up life I, by osmosis. I got a tremendous art education just by being mm. there. And sure. I really do, you know, as the years have gone by and they've made more and more, they've done more and more reports on when our personalities get formed. I remember for a long time, mm -hmm. it was like six years, the first six years. And then it kept getting whittled down to smaller and smaller till it became about one <laughs> right. year. And so they told parents yeah. how important it was to expose their kids. You know, by one year old, 
to different cultural things <laughs> and different you know experiences because they get it by one year old. So that's why I redid my charts then to say that I got Picasso by by one year. And I think I did. And, and that was, you know, a really, really, really high bar to live one's whole life after one year by. Not easy. Not easy <laughs> at all, actually. It's still with me. Well, and I think now the I, I think now the so-called experts are back up to five years. Oh, I they think, are back I, up know, to five I remember years now? Here, it's, it's, I think it's back up to five years. Like the first five years are so important for blah, 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 right. blah. So I don't know. Who knows? Right. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> you know, does it cause cancer? Does it, does it cure cancer? I mean, you know, wait five years, you know, they'll change their mind. You know, it's like. Well, that, you know, it's interesting because I have what I'm doing right now in my life is exactly what I've been doing in my life, my entire life, basically, really since eight years mm, old. Mm, I really haven't had mm. another interest. The only other interest, major interest that I had in my life creatively was acting. And that was mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons I wanted to be an actor was because I realized at a really young age, since I've been painting since eight years old, and I have to say, and it sounds pretentious maybe, but seriously, I've been painting, I feel seriously, because I've got my work going mm -hmm. back to eight years old. And honest to God, mm -hmm. that work looks as good as anything I've ever done. And it totally holds <laughs> up to today, really, honestly, in my own it, it's of course it's my estimation, but I, I you're think still I, proud of it. You're still proud of it. That's well, great. and I think it still totally, totally works, and it's very, very adult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I watched this uh, Aretha movie last night. You know that mm. movie that just came out last year, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Aretha Franklin, and you know how she started singing in the church. Her father was the big was yep. the big preacher and all that, and she started you know singing in the church when she was like eight, ten years old. And how many artists that become, you know, really successful uh -huh. as their lives go on really did start, find themselves at a young age. And I do feel that I, I found myself through the artwork at a young age because in that regard, I feel very blessed because it gave me something to do. And it gave me something to keep myself excited about. And the concept of, uh, you know, taking some, making something out of nothing you know, just from your brain to your heart to your hands. And at the end of that day, you actually have a product. You actually have something that is substantial. You know, and I sold, this is my famous line, but I honestly did. I sold my first painting at 10 years old to the American ambassador in Indonesia. And his name was John Galbraith from a very famous family, the Galbraith family. So... After Paris, to answer your question, after Paris, and I lived in Austria for two or three years in Vienna, and then we moved to Bangkok, Thailand for several years, and then to, let's see, from Bangkok to Iran for two to three years. Wow. And then from Iran yeah. to Indonesia for a couple of years, and then to Korea. That's right. And then to Korea for four years where I was really, really, really fortunate enough really fortunate enough, trust me, to go all the way through one high school. One high school. Very, very important because everything I read is those are the most formative years in a person's life. Yes. And if they're screwed up during those high school years, that can really screw them up big time. So mm. I, and it didn't. Well, and, it did and moving around like you did, I mean, that's, that's kind of incredible because, I mean, as a son of a diplomat, I mean, arguably you would have jumped a lot of schools and the fact that you were able to actually – you know, stay in one place for multiple years during those formative years. I mean, that was quite a gift. I consider that now in retrospect, like the, mm. one of the major gifts of my life, because not only mm. the, was I able to go all the way through that high school in that four-year period, but it turned out that it was really an excellent high school. I would put it on the same level as like Beverly Hills High, something like that. Mm -hmm, I mean, it mm -hmm, was all, mm -hmm. you know, paid for, sponsored by the Department of Defense, but, you know, they got the best people. Because as a teacher working overseas, that was fantastic duty because of all the fringe benefits that they got working for the government, mm -hmm. traveling and all that. Mm -hmm. So they had the, the best people. Mm -hmm. So it was a very fabulous high school. I thank God for that in my life. And I was very successful in high school. 
I, I was like the star artist, mm. actor. And I, on top of that, though, I was actually student council president in my senior year. Yeah. <laughs> That's a fun fact. Yeah. I mean, you and I have known each other for a few years now. And I mean, some of these stories are familiar to me, but I have not heard that. Like I did student, yeah. uh, senior class student council president. No, That's not amazing. senior class president, but student council president. Okay. Student council honestly, president. Yeah. I ran the most visually and verbally exciting campaign. I had the best buttons. I had the best posters. <laughs> and I spoke. Whether I said anything didn't really matter. Did. Yeah. But what I said, right. it had more emotion or it had more, it had more impact to it. And the majority, it's funny because our junior high and high school were both together. Because combined senior and junior high school was maybe about seven, 800 people. But the majority of those people were in junior high school, and they're the ones I really got to. So I can understand Trump and everything. You know, it, it's uh, it, it goes. But Brand, I mean, you know, not to be crass about it, but I mean, branding is a powerful thing. And when well, you're giving really, somebody it, it, a it, visual it, visual imagery that is energetic and is bold and is exciting, I mean, people love that. It's very human. Absolutely. And I found that out in my senior year in high school, big time. And I've been doing it ever <laughs> since. <laughs> I've been running for artists yeah, oh, ever since. Yeah. Andre, this may explain why I lost my campaign for student council president oh, in eighth grade. <laughs> I lost uh, oh, because my branding and my campaign was not adequate. You know, although I, I would have to say, looking back, that the funny. That my competitor who won, as these things do, I think it turned out to be a popularity contest, right? So he, you know, he was perhaps more popular. He won, but it was, it stung really badly because A, I knew I was the better candidate, but then it especially stung because the next year when he was president, he came to me privately and said, man, I really hate this. I really wish you had won because you would have been a better president. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and I ended up winning a student council senator of the year wow. <laughs> that year. But uh, yeah. Wow. So know, we have this in uh, common. Uh, Very interesting. <laughs> this is a good omen to an interview, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, next time I run, I'm going to have you do all my brand. But you know, my. Okay. So giving you a little bit. You're right. I can do that. But a little bit more on my presidency. The yes. guy that I ran against, he was a general's son. Mm. And I even remember his mm. name was Jim Cassart. Can you believe I remember this? His name was uh, Jim Cassart. Yeah. And he was a general sure. son. Yeah. And he wanted to yeah. go to West Point. Or I, maybe he did go to West Point, but he wanted mm. to go to West Point. So for him winning, you know, the presidency, student council, that was like mm. an important thing yeah. to be able to yes. go to yes. West Point with. And he didn't get sure. that. And here I was, uh, you know, just an artist, actor type, you know, just, uh, yeah, la -la, yeah, yeah. just doing it for Liberal. or whatever. <laughs> and I wasn't as popular with the senior class because of that, actually. He was more popular with the senior class. So it was, it was, uh -huh. yeah, interesting. But uh, anyway. When he went home that night, you know, his dad beat him. Probably. <laughs> Probably. I'm not raising no loser. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> you know? funny. That is true. Yeah. Oh, man. Isn't that funny? All these memories of the life well lived and all the things that come that, that we remember or don't remember or things that come back. Really, in that respect, my life has not changed at all in all these years. I mean, considering what I'm doing. I mean, you could have visited me in high school, like in my room. My bedroom was like my studio or my father's studio was really mm -hmm. what I used. But my bedroom was all decorated with my artwork. You know, it was just like what I'm living in mm -hmm. now. And mm -hmm. it's the same, virtually yeah. the same thing. So I feel very blessed in my life that I have been able to do that. And, and the reality is, man, I quit waiting tables March 1st, 1982. And honest to God, I have not even had a day that will live in infamy. Exactly. But honest to God, in all these years now, I have not even had a part-time job, a non-related part-time job. Well, I haven't even had a part time an art-related part-time job, really. I haven't had a job besides the art career in all these years. Yeah. Well, you're correct. It's amazing. Well, you know, you're one of those special artists that, it, you know, sort of – You've got both sides of the brain, but then also, you know, you've obviously have the chops in terms of making really 
dynamic, special, world-class artworks. But then you have that other muscle that so many artists struggle with, which is the ability to promote and communicate and sell. I mean, you are a fantastic advocate for your own work. Well, thanks for saying that, but it sounds like that. But honestly, I don't know how much I totally agree with that. Okay. Tell me why I'm wrong. Well, especially, you know, right now, especially, you know, recently I've gotten into the NFT world and a big Mm -hmm. part of the marketing and promotion of the NFT world is uh, really promoting yourself and your NFT Mm. endeavor. And that is as technical as the whole NFT thing is to set up. After you set it up, it all reverts back to totally analog time of marketing and reaching out. It's all completely analog. And it's all people to Mm. people. And people to people in these rooms, on Clubhouse, on Twitter, Mm-hmm. It's in mm-hmm. that's where everybody says, no matter if you have, you know, social marketing people that you hire, that nothing beats mm-hmm. you personally going out there with your voice and people picking up on your voice personally, one on one, and then being excited by that and enough to motivate them to go and buy your product. And that's essentially the holy grail, it seems, of this mm-hmm. world. And that has not been easy for me at all. That's been very, it's been very kind of hard for me. So what's the struggle? Is it about the medium? Like, you know, the idea that you're in a virtual space on Clubhouse and it's just kind of awkward and weird? Or is it the new topic in NFT in terms of how to talk about your art through that prism? I mean, what are some of the things that you really, find really yourself good grappling with? Really, really good questions. You're yeah. right on there. It's a combination of all those things, kind of. But mm. um, for me and my patience level, mm. I find mm. that, you know, you have to wait around a lot. You can't just... I mean, you can barge your way into these these rooms, but they'll get rid of you. I mean, they'll put you down for that, you know. So there mm-hmm. is a whole learning curve of what the protocol is, I find, you know, mm-hmm. in these rooms. Mm-hmm. And so overall, mm-hmm. I'm finding a lot of waiting. There's a lot of waiting. And you're just, you know, yeah. it's basically radio. It. And I'm a visualist. You're not even seeing, at least I'm seeing you while I'm talking, you know, mm-hmm. so it's more active yeah. to me. It, it's more real or something. Right. Right. So it's just, it takes a lot of time to do these rooms. A lot of time is involved. That's interesting, you know, and I and I totally get it. I mean, I have not played too much in those spaces. I've listened a lot. I've not participated at all, really. Now that you say that, I get that because it's sort of like a big conference call, you know, back in, totally. you know, when I used to have a real job, you know, you'd be on these conference calls and you'd have 10 people or 20 people, whatever it is. But that's what kind of clubhouse is. It's like a big, massive conference call. And you're right. You're just like waiting around for your turn to say something. And that might take 20 minutes. Actually, a lot longer than that. (laughs) You know, and then in that time that you're waiting and things, your mind is going, am I going to say the right thing or this? How am I going to jump in? So the anxiety gets higher and higher. And I can talk, obviously I can talk, but still I'm, since it's a whole new thing and, uh, you know, there's a whole language to this whole technology. Yeah, and and right. there are a lot of people that can talk that language, which I haven't really, I don't feel I've really, you know, I, I'm learning, but I'm nowhere near. Cause- no, it's true. There is a language. I, that's exactly right. I mean, it's a, there's a jargon parlance and, you know, it's like you want to sound intelligent, <laughs> right? You want to sound, you want to, you want to sound informed as to what you're saying. And it's a new ball game. So it's, you know, it's hard to, hard to know what you don't exactly. know. Exactly. So in that regard, though, did you you were able to go to my NFT space with Dave, Raven Dave? Did you go there at the Art Walk? I was there. Well, I at the Art Walk, yes, I did go there, and I saw Debbie, and we walked into the oh, into the 3D space as well. Well, Raven, yeah, Raven Dave, wonderful. he's he's fabulous, and he's one of my partners right now. I've got two partners in my life. Mm-hmm. Never had partners like this before. Shout out to your partners. Let's talk about them. Yeah. So Raven Dave is the technical guy. Did you hear him speaking at all, or? Unfortunately not. No, I didn't hear yeah, him speak. He's really, really yeah. good. So in that regard, you know, I feel that in my life now as an artist, and, and you're saying, I'm, you know, I'm an artist, and I, and I have been doing this now for all these years, and however it's happened, it baffles me, honest to God, it really it does baffle me at my age now, knowing that I am as chronologically as old as I am. But because I've been doing the same thing all my life, in some way, I know chronologically I'm older, but in some way... I feel like I'm the same age as I've always been from early days. 
It's weird. Yeah. Because I've been living well, in a your bubble spirit, my whole no, life. But your spirit I, is so, yeah. And I don't, I don't even have kids as a measuring, you know, as a ruler. Mm, mm. So the only, I've been able to, yeah. I've been living in my own bubble my entire life. And that bubble for me has been, it's been placed as a creative endeavor, you know, doing something, producing mm. something that to me shows that I actually exist in some way I exist. Mm. Because in growing up the way I did with all these different countries all the time, first 18 years of my life, in a way, I, I really felt like I was from nowhere, even though I was all, mm. I was an American. And boy, they really pushed mm. that growing up. They really pushed that, that I was an American overseas and that I was an ambassador mm. representing the country, you know, all that stuff. Mm. I got that from day mm -hmm. one. Well, not totally from day one, because my father didn't join the Foreign Service until about two years into Paris, because he was an artist studying in Paris at the time, Americans in Paris, both he and my mother, and he had to get a day job. And he got a day job with the American government. And at that time, 1950, 51, something like that, that was when the American Foreign Service was really just beginning, you know, after the war. The sure. State Department was just yeah. building the, the enormous bureaucracy that's become back then. So it, it turned out to be a really fabulous day job because working for the government then and when the dollar in the 50s and 60s was absolute king in the world, the line I used about growing up, I grew up with a pewter spoon in my mouth. And mm. that's one of the reasons to this day as a full-blown senior, I still don't know how to do anything. <laughs> that's why I need to hire people <laughs> to do things for me. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, you know, I totally track what you're saying. I mean, you know, as, as someone who's known you for a few years now, it's like one of the things that's always drawn me to you is your spirit because it is so, you, well, you have a fun, energetic, dare I say, youthful spirit. You're young at heart, man, you know, and no matter the chronological calendar, you know, your energy, you exude an energy that is compelling and is fun and, and, and engaging and and you just, you know, people want well, to be know, around it. You, and you so know, I'm not you're saying that because I would tend to agree with you. And, and I would say that overall, my work, if there's one consistent thing that comes across in my work, is a certain energy, is an, is an uplifting energy. Mm. But, you know, mm -hmm. growing up as a kid, I never felt young. I never felt young. I always felt like I was 30 or something, at least 30. Yeah, old, old soul kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, totally. yeah, yeah, yeah. So the yeah, irony, the yeah. irony is now that I'm old, so young, older, in a way, yeah, I'm feeling like the age that I always was, or something. It's strange. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I get that. I get that. I get that. Yeah, I sort of had a little bit of that growing up. I always felt like the guys that in my neighborhood I was growing up with were sort of like idiots. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you know, they were nice and they were fun, but I always felt like okay, like. That's kind of dumb. Right. <laughs> you know, like, well, that's why we, you know, we relate well, to each well, other. Well, I, I wanted to hang out with the older kids who seemed right. uh, way more sophisticated and interesting. But, you know, but but going back to what you're saying, though, about, you know, talking about some of these technologies and some of the new things, because, you know, I think there's an argument to be made that you've always kind of been on the vanguard when it comes to where your art can be found or where you can be found making art. So if I recall, for example, I mean, you were part of the MTV glass house live promotion. I mean, back in the day when, when they had the, the cameras in the room and you're just painting, what was that about? I mean, like MTV was new at the time and now you're, you're working with them wow. and, and you're making art well, to kind of live, wow. you know, it's amazing. Well, that's really interesting that you would bring that up. I guess you've researched something. But what you've just said, it wasn't MTV, actually. It was actually for Absolute Vodka. Right. right. I'm sorry. You're called, right. It that's was called right. the Human Ant Farm. And I, yes. I, I, became, yes. <laughs> I became an absolute artist. My first Absolute Mirapolsky ad mm. was in 91, I believe. The original ad was part of their campaign. It was called Absolute Artists of the 90s. And it was a 36-page ad with, I think, yeah, 34 artists or something like that that was placed mm -hmm. in a couple different magazines. I think that was like the biggest ad in history, actually, the, you know, a 36-page. Like and you could take mm -hmm. it out of the mm -hmm. magazine. It was like a booklet. Right, right. It was like a book inside a right, book. exactly. Yeah. And that was the first one I did. And then I did three different gigs for them, and that was one. And then I did a major billboard, a huge billboard in San Francisco 
that was uh, turned out that that billboard location was in the top five billboard locations in the whole country. And that billboard was up for two years in San Francisco from 97 to 99. But then in 90, Mm -hmm. I did this thing, I guess it was in 96, maybe. Yeah, yeah, the billboard was after. So 96, I think. So Absolute, they rented a studio, a store space in Venice, California, and they set it up as a studio, as a video studio. And at the beginning of it, they only had like one camera mounted on the ceiling. And they invited an artist to come in one a week, 40 hours a week, to do their artwork that then was filmed. And this was the first continuous, I believe this was the first continuous internet broadcast, live internet broadcast. And it was through their website. And at that time in 96, that was like the first time. It was absolute vodka. Everything with them had to be the first, mm. had to be absolute. Yeah, you know, right. It had to be the best. Mm-hmm. So um, that's what that was. And as it went on for the month, I think it was like a month. And it was more, it was more than a month that they had an artist a week. It was like three months, I think. And as it went on, more savvy technological artists came in and they rearranged the camera. They put another camera, different angles. So it got to be more sophisticated. And they did have a computer person working on the computer so that as the artist, as like I was working on my, I called my thing message in a bottle. So that people could call in or they could write in questions to the artist Mm. in real time that were asked and then could be sent back to them. This was like the first, right? So this was very, uh, Mm -hmm. and I just so happened to have, here is my message in a bottle that I I used and I gave out to people because in the bottle, the message, wow, it actually comes out. The message. <laughs> so there is. Oh, you can't really read it. Yeah, unfortunately, I can't read it from this end. What's it? What's it say? This is something that I cut up pieces because I did these large, formatted pieces on construction paper on the floor, and they were all mm-hmm. since it was going out to the world. I wanted to send out messages, mm-hmm. so they were all graphics that also had a message like "Fear no art, pro peace." Reach inside yes, and yes. grow. They were all, um, I didn't have Viva LA yet, but they were all these kind mm-hmm. of messages. So I thought that was kind of funny to, you know, to be able to get out, to keep everything three words or less and to get that out. So it says here, Absolute Mirapolsky, message in a bottle, the human ant farm live on the World Wide Web, June 10th through 14th, 1996. Right. Amazing. So that was amazing. Um, yeah, that was a good one. Well, and that was the cutting edge at the time, that, uh, you that, know. And, that honestly and, and, was the cutting edge at the time. You're right. Cutting edge, yeah. cutting edge. And here you are now on the NF on the cutting edge with NFTs. I mean, wow. you're right. You I, know, I forgot about Andre. that. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> That's like and, but, from 96 to 2022, man. I mean, you, you're I, still on the van. I know, but I, I really, I, I feel that on my tombstone, the correct phrase can be in spite of myself. Because I, I really, really feel yeah. that I have these wins in spite of myself. You know, I, I've been somebody who I do realize I've had a lot of opportunities given to me. And I've been somebody, though, that when the opportunity knocks, I've always been somebody who rises to the occasion and makes the most yes. out of that. And that's what I always tell people. Well, and by the way, you're also one of those people that when tragedy strikes, you find a way to lift yourself up and come back better and stronger because, my God, your life, your career at its peak was taken to a tragic low when you were damn near died in that car accident back in the uh, early 90s. Well, that's true. And that car accident, I I use, I mean, obviously to this day, because that was my closest near. Well, I've had three near fatal situations in my life now, and all three of them had to do with a car. So, so that one was no wonder you don't uh, drive much. (laughs) Right. Exactly. But that particular situation was the grandest version of it because it was a major car accident and I did almost die and I didn't have insurance. And so I look at that experience Mm -hmm. in my life as a truckload of miracles because I had several miracles that all happened in correct timing. Like if you had all the money in the world, I swear to God, I don't think I could have gotten faster or better service than I did. With six operations or seven operations in a nine-month period, I look at that as really my biggest miracle thing. Yeah. 
So yeah. there has to be a reason, you know, that's still still here. Well, I'm just, you know, I bring it up not to, you know, I, part of the reason I bring it up is just to inspire other people because oftentimes, you know, we about the only thing we can truly control in life is our attitude. And, you know, so many people might would have been, you know, in, in that situation might have given up and you didn't give up. You, you kept fighting. And I think that's, you know, an incredible, and you built a whole body of work based on the experience. In that regard, I'll tell you the story. So in that regard, that body of work that you're talking about is called Fear No Art, a crash course in reality. And while I was going through this experience, this guy that I evidently met, who was a mutual friend of a, another friend of mine, but I didn't really know this guy really well. I, I had met him once or something. But when he found out about my accident, it turned out that he was kind of an artist as well. His art form was doing his art and mailing it to people. It was like there's a class of people that do artwork and then mail it to people and they're hoping to get something back from them or something, but it's all through the mail. So I started okay. getting these incredibly poignant, sensitive, wonderful photo collages that he would put together that had some relationship to my to the experience that I was going through at the mm -hmm. time. And I thought that was like unbelievable that somebody that I didn't even know was going out of their way to send me these really sensitive mm -hmm. things that really ins messages that really messages in a bottle then, but that really, really, that mm -hmm. really inspired me to the point where it got to the point where I was getting so many of these things that I had to get outside of myself and I had to reach out and send something back to him. And when I did mm. that and constructed the first cardboard, this whole body of work that I did, which was I, I consider my Frida Kahlo kind of moment, because mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. thought at the time that here I was an artist given this, and I wasn't dead and I wasn't injured like forever or anything like that. So I felt that I was an artist given this incredible opportunity, life opportunity. And as an artist, I always in my head was always about relating to your life experience, always, you know, using that for your art. So I thought, oh my God, mm -hmm. here I have this tremendous life and death, you know, life experience. And how can I integrate that somehow in an art form? So the first pieces that I did, and at the time I did these by the time I could actually get into a wheelchair. So I, I did all these pieces on cardboard, ripped cardboard, paper, strings, staples, whatever to put together in an illustration, a cart, kind of a cartoon illustration with using myself as a central character and then having word bubbles mm -hmm. and sound bubbles with doctors and nurses and different characters so that it kind of makes an illustrated linear story with a beginning, middle, and an end, mm -hmm. all illustrated. And for mm -hmm. the cover of that, just before I had that car accident, I had come out with this phrase, fear no art, literally just mm -hmm. before the accident. Literally, I, I got the first batch of, I don't know, a thousand buttons or whatever it was, a thousand buttons just before I left for, ironically, Paris, France, mm -hmm. which I landed mm -hmm. in on the night of my 33rd birthday. And I thought, I, I'm not really into numerology, but if there's any number that I'm, I think mm -hmm. is special, is a number three, because it's mm -hmm. number three mythologically. You know, it's when yeah. things really come together. There's the three I points of the it. pyramid. It goes on and on and on with number three. Mm -hmm. So I thought 33, oh my God, this is going to be some kind of a year. And ironically, just before I left for France, because what got me over to France was I went to the marriage in the south of France of Wolfgang Puck and Barbara Lazaroff. And Wolfgang Puck was the owner, uh, still the owner of Spago. And I opened the first Spago in Los Angeles on the Sunset Strip, Sunset and Horn. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's right. Sunset and Horn. <laughs> and yeah. yeah, so that was a very big deal because Spago became a revolution, a culinary revolution mm -hmm. in Los Angeles. That's a long story unto itself. So that was in the early 80s. I had a string of successes, beginning with Elton John in 1980. And he kind of set the bar Actually, he's still kind of set the bar down for the rest of my these last 40 years. I mean, my God, I mean, come on, let's just pause and honor that for a moment, because there are few 
images in rock and roll history more iconic than Elton John wearing your art in one of his concerts, the famous renowned piano keyboard lapels. In Central Park, which is still, I I believe, it's still the biggest single concert he's ever had with 500,000 people. Yeah. And then it was, obviously, it was was, um, broadcast (laughs) like insanely. Right. Yeah. And that's kind of an yeah. interesting and story. And your artwork was right there it, front and It's center. still with me yeah. because last year, somehow, an Elton John fan club reached out to me from Scotland. It turns out, and mm-hmm. I didn't even think about Elton John fan clubs. So, but there are a lot of Elton John fan clubs all over the world, big time. Sure. Yeah. And they're yeah. looking for any kind of backstory, any kind of backstory, Elton John backstory, right? And I happen right, to have right, right. how I got those costumes. The whole story is, is really a fantastic Hollywood story. Of how I got those costumes yeah. the last minute. He hated, you know, kind of hated the Bob Mackie costumes that were already done. And I was like the last minute thing. And, and you know, it went on to what it, it was. But it is a fabulous story how that all happened. And again, like I, I say in my life, that's a prime example of how I've had these opportunities. And how I've been able, and I say yes. And then you have to follow through. And I've been very fortunate in really never fucking up once I get an opportunity. I've always... <laughs> yeah, turns out execution is critical. Yeah. <laughs> Saying yes is critical, but then pull, you know, back on a dime, up the, uh, on a dime. That up. because my yeah, my, dime, my experience in show business that it always happens to be on a dime in show business, and I yes, and I think yes. that my experience because in the seventies uh, the majority of my experience of my creative experience was as an actor, and I did wow. By the time I was like twenty five, I had done maybe twelve Shakespearean productions. I did five years of Shakespeare in repertory, and I considered that experience in my life because I had no formal training. It was all learning as you go, and I always got cast in big roles, and it was always terrifying for me. Just learning the lines (laughs) was terrifying for me, and I never really got over that, so I never was totally comfortable, really, as an actor. Mm. Mm. But at any rate, it was incredible training, and I consider that training to be uh, my training for my life because obviously you get to be aware of audiences. You get to be aware of a whole show. You get to be aware of, of so many things that have served me extremely well in my life. So that when somebody like mm-hmm. an Elton John comes in and I have to do a costume for him or costumes for him, I have some kind of a, a you know subconscious idea of what theatrically can work and not just thinking of one aspect of it, but thinking about the whole show kind of thing. Yes. And that's helped me tremendously in my career, actually. You have a very uh, keen sense of the kind of the ecosystem, right? I mean, the moving parts of the larger system and how your art works within that larger system. And that's a powerful bit of uh, wisdom. I think that's how I've been able to really, honestly, that's how I've been able to survive as an artist. So because Mm. I've been able to adapt my energy, my vibe or whatever that Mm -hmm. is, to mm-hmm. these different mm-hmm. platforms that I find I'm comfortable yeah. with. I mean, let's be clear. I mean, some of those uh, platforms and some of those, you know, we've talked about a couple of them, obviously, but we haven't even mentioned the uh, the famous uh, MTV basketball court. I think yeah. maybe that's why I was remembering MTV because, you know, back was the early 90s, you painted the for the, what, what was it? That was, was for the, the, the Rock and called? Jock B-Ball Jam. Rock and Jock right. B-Ball Jam, right. I mean, and the Marky basketball Mark, court you Marky painted was Mark, incredible. When he was Marky Mark, played on it. Uh-huh. Leonardo DiCaprio played on it. All these people. <laughs> and you yeah. know what? These things, man, this is what's kind of fabulous now with the technology because all of these things are mm. still completely, totally alive thanks to YouTube. Everything mm. is on YouTube. Mm. So everything is current. <laughs> Because yeah. on a TV screen, everything, you know, it all looks contemporary, really. It's my, and my stuff, right, right. it still looks, to me, it still looks contemporary to me. Yeah, it, no, it no, absolutely. The, the artwork itself, yes, yes. Right. Yes. Amazingly so. Well, so, okay. So, you know, I'm driving down, uh, I think it was Western Avenue the other day here in, uh, in L.A., and I see a billboard that uh, makes me think of you. Because I have to assume that this is you, the Viva LA Music Festival. Oh, wow. You saw that billboard, which is actually, well, I don't really want to talk about it, but artistically, the billboard is very rudimentary. That's what I wanted to ask you about it, because it's very, the logo, 
of course, I thought of you instantly, yes. but it is a very basic version right. of said logo. Yes. And the billboard itself is a very basic logo because they're really trying to promote the artists that are performing at this thing. But talk to me about this. What exactly is your involvement in Viva LA Music Festival? Well, my involvement with Viva LA is that myself and my co-creator partner on Viva LA, Christian Mittman. Shout out, Christian. Yes, we actually trademarked the phrase Viva LA. Both just the phrase mm -hmm. Viva LA, and then we developed the brand. This is the actual mm -hmm. brand with words Viva LA. And then what you yep. liked on the yep. back of my coat, the heart wings. Yep. The, I'm getting one of those. Without the yep. words. That's the partnership, which in the branding world, that seems to be a formula thing to have the one with mm -hmm. the word and then the other one, because this one can go on the front and this one, that other one can go on the. Yep. Anyway. Yeah. So it's kind of a story of how this worked with Viva LA, the. Viva LA Music Festival for the first annual Viva LA Music Festival at Dodger Stadium. Well, our contract is up to 25 years. So this is our first licensing deal with Viva LA with an organization, AEG and mm -hmm. uh, Golden Voice. And they're one of the, mm -hmm. I think, if they're not the biggest, they're two competitors in the world with music promotion and concert going. Mm -hmm. So they had to come to us because they wanted that name, Viva LA, for this. It's kind of a story of, I don't know how much time we have, but it's kind of a story because Golden Voice is headquartered in Pomona. And the president of Golden Voice lives in Pomona. And they have a couple big venues. And Golden Voice produces Coachella, which just ended yesterday. Yep. Oh, no, 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 yep. it didn't. It, this first weekend, because we're going out to Coachella on Saturday next week. Right. There's two weekends now. The first weekend just right. ended. Right. And we were invited by them to go out there on Saturday. We're going out there Saturday this week to check out because we're going to be involved in the Viva LA music festival as far as creating some kind of a an environment where uh, like a rest stop or something where people can go and mm -hmm. be entertained mm -hmm. and nothing for sale really, but just as a, as a rest thing or something. So we're going to, we're going to be involved with that. They developed a, a producer of theirs in Pomona had developed a program with alternative music program that was called Viva uh -huh. Pomona, where they developed a very large uh, Viva calligraphy thing with Viva. And then the Pomona was very small. Uh -huh. So that was nine years. And for their 10-year anniversary, they moved from a 900-seat venue in Pomona for this to 50,000 seats or people. <laughs> at, in, How's that for a step Exactly. Up? At Dodger Stadium. So they wanted to keep that going with Viva L.A., but Viva was big, like on the billboard. Viva is very big. In fact, here is the poster. I just happened to have that handy. So right. Here's the poster. Yes, yes. And this is their thing. So yeah, yeah. in negotiating, since that wasn't our thing, but it looks like my calligraphy. It looks like I could have easily done that. So anyway, we're getting paid well for this. And besides getting paid Good. well, they're treating us as a full sponsor. Because on the bottom, there is our... Nice. Our actual yes. logo. And then we're going to be there at the yep. festival. We're going to be involved with them because Paul Tillett, who's the president of Golden Voice, he loves it. And he loves what we're doing with Viva LA, wanting to wanting Viva LA to represent the creative culture of Los Angeles. He's all for that. Yes. And in fact, I told you when I saw you over the weekend that we're putting together a pitch for a, a TV documentary yep. series yep. on the TV culture of Los Angeles. Show. Yep. And yep. one of the people that yep. we'd like to do a piece on is this guy, Rene Contreras, a young guy who's the producer from Golden Voice in Pomona who did the Viva Pomona thing. And now he's, mm -hmm. the big, he's getting the big shot now at Viva LA. Mm -hmm. So he's mm -hmm. a young guy and very photogenic. So we want to uh, do a mm -hmm. piece on him. So that's kind of how that's worked. But it's interesting because we thought, you know, that that would be the first, you know, they're spending a half a million dollars on promotion. So that Viva LA is all over the place. But yep. some people thought that was a dangerous thing to do because that would be the first thing that people would see with the Viva LA. But our mm -hmm. idea and why we did the deal was because as long as they're treating ours with respect and that we're a sponsor that we can license it out to other people if they wanted to do a different logo, but we would always have to be yep. included as the sponsor. And, yes. and in my mind, I coined the phrase in 2006, Viva LA, I first came out with that. And it's always been a, it's always been a successful thing for me on a small level, but it's always been successful. And I've always thought after all the years of having that phrase, 
I thought always the most successful thing about it was simply the way it comes out of a person's mouth. That is, it's the mm. phrase itself, which I think is the big mm. success because it's easy to say. It's one word. You know, it's a very flowing thing. And L.A. doesn't have a catchphrase. It doesn't have a catchphrase. So that seems to be all I care about is people just saying it because that's what Viva L.A. Yeah. And I think the more people say it, then it will become more and more real because my goal for Viva L.A. from the beginning has always been to make it like a ubiquitous thing. Well, it should be the I love New York version of, of exactly. for L.A. And that, right? I mean, and that's it, exactly that's, yeah, that's the model that we've been using for it. Absolutely. And it's just a, it's still amazing to me that I, that we were able to actually trademark something like that. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. So with AEG and Golden Voice's involvement with it, God only knows. Because if there's anybody in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. I think, that is appropriate for helping to make something like this really become a, a ubiquitous reality, it would be somebody like them. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, the only other big player besides AEG would be, I guess, Live Nation, right? It's just really either eight. That's that's it. it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, that's exciting, Andre. I'm just thrilled. Yeah, I saw that billboard. I was like, oh, I got to ask Andre about that when we we talk. Because, you know, it's... The big thing with their font is Viva with an exclamation mark after Viva. So when it's printed, though, sometimes it's printed with that and then LA after the exclamation mark, which is not actually proper but a lot of places right, don't right. do that because it does it they just go viva la and the way it's pronounced it's not pronounced with, with an exclamation mark at the end of viva it's set it's pronounced the same right, right, way right. viva la so i think that's like yeah. the overall that's the most important thing so the more people see that phrase it'll just be viva la in their minds and and you know it's all part of the mix so you're right. It is so not to jump around too much, though. But I mean, we talk, and this is so exciting. That's great. And by the way, we should say that the uh, festival is Saturday, June 25th, so that people know and they can get their tickets. They can go and be a part of it and support Viva LA and support you and and, and look for that rest uh, oasis that you guys right. are building there for the concert. They have the pla- they- but well, but I want to make sure that our listeners also know about, about where to where they can buy your NFTs because we sort of we, you know we started talking right. about that. We've referenced it a few times, but. Let's get specific. Where can people go to buy and own uh, Andre Maropolsky NFT? Thank you for asking, and you're absolutely correct. Thanks. They can go to sharktailsart.com. Because also sharktails... Sharktailsart, yes. .com. Sharktails.art, actually. Sharktails.art, right? Yes, Sharktails.art. Yes. Exactly. And that's tails, T-A-L-E-S, not T-A-I-L-S. Shark Tales, T-A-L-E-S dot art. The Maripolsky Shark Tales Art Club. Right. I love That's it. That's right. It's so good. And I, you know I love your sharks. I mean, come no, on. No, I know, I know. You really love your sharks. And, <laughs> and we're about to have another shark experience. <laughs> as you, as yes, we me. are. Yes, we are. <laughs> and as far as in my book, that experience could not be. That's another one of these. You know, it couldn't be in a better uh, holistic, karmic situation for that particular painting <laughs> yes correct yes, yes i mean that's kind of spooky <laughs> it, oh my god it's it meant to i be. mean it's like meant it's to be meant it just to couldn't be, be uh, yeah you know that's it's kind of like the same yes. kind of thing as elton with a piano outfit at central park yes it's, it's yes. on that kind of weird yes. you know branding identity level you know that's it's, right it's really funny yes it's but uh, yeah you've serendipity, been a of the sharks so the other shark thing that people can go to because what got us started from the get-go, we we're really fortunate with the NFTs and the shark NFTs that right from the get-go, mm-hmm. from the second reach out, we connected with a fantastic ocean conservancy organization called Beneath the Waves, who happened to be looking mm-hmm. for a theme for an NFT for themselves. And we came in mm-hmm. with, you know, the silver platter with all these sharks. And, and one of their main missions of their program is to help save the shark populations of the world, which are being decimated by yes, shark yes. fin soup. Oh, wow. What a serendipitous uh, connection there. Extreme, that's but that's, beautiful. again, like I was saying about my, my fortune and my uh, things come in, you know, from the universe. And from that, and that turned in, we got a commission to do a 10,000 generative edition of sharks for a company that we're partnered with, nftg.live. People can go to nftg.live. And if they get a membership with them, 
This company, what they do with NFTG Live is a platform for NFT artists or any artists that are looking to put their work up to, for exposure, or whatever. This is a platform for that. And then with your membership, you get four free NFTs a year. And I was the first artist that they commissioned, and you will get one of my sharks, one out of 10,000 for free. And mm -hmm. that whole process was really a fantastic, fantastic process in my life that I've never experienced because I did, they were able to, and they also say 10,000, but they actually did like 13,000, 14,000, but they say they're all unique images, which honest to God, they are. And amazingly mm -hmm. so actually, and all derived from 15 original, only 15 original drawings that I did. You know, some kind of strategizing the layout of the drawings, like a cartoony thing with different mm -hmm. layers, because all done with layers. And uh, mm -hmm. he goes through a whole process, but even with a process that they could print, and they said analog. So the analoging all this, they can do a million different images. It's it's amazing to me, and they all look, Incredible. and they all look, they have integrity. They, they they don't look any weaker. Yeah, no, no. I was going to ask you because like 10,000, because I've seen many of them and I was like, holy shit, did he draw these? Well, I know that's the way it looks <laughs> I mean, to me too. And it looks like I'm a fucking genius yeah, yeah. or something. You know, that I, I could do all these things. <laughs> Let's not tell anybody the yeah, truth. Exactly. Yeah. So there's a fake thing. See, that's fake in a way. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right, right. We didn't, it's we fake, but them. it's real. It's not real art. For, for the art walk, we actually printed, because I, I bought a couple of these membership myself and we mm. actually printed you know, from the TV screen or, you know, from the screen, however that got done, we took it to Modern Multiples, which is a fantastic uh, silk screen. Mm. Oh, it's yeah. Shout out to Montana. LA. Yeah. And yeah. We, yeah. we took these to them. And honest to God, the prints are fantastic because anybody that mm. has one of these, they can do whatever they want with them. We yeah, decided right. we could not own the rights to the whole world, to any individual person wanting to take it. It was just too complicated. If any you know company comes right. and they take it and they want to rip it up and they make a big deal out of it or something, then that's something a case that we would go to. But otherwise, right. this whole world is really fantastic. So NFTG Live, if anybody wants to look at that at the series, please check that out. Well, that's incredible. And Andre, unfortunately, we're running out of time today, but I wanted to before we go. I want to make sure that our audience knows exactly where to find you online. Where are you communicating with your fans now? Primarily on Instagram? Are you, I mean, obviously you have your website. Tell our listeners where they can follow you. Well, my website is www.miripolsky.com. That's my new website. And I'm on Instagram, Miripolsky Art, I believe. And I'm on Twitter, which is, um, I think, Shark Tales Clubhouse. And if they want to follow us, please follow us. And this is important. Tag us or whatever, but follow us on Twitter at Shark Tales Art Club on Twitter. That's the, I think that's the most important one. Building followers. Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. That's right, man. Well, you know, it's like people need to part, be a part. People need the our listeners, the people that don't know. They need to be a part of the Maripolsky universe because there is so much goodness, so much love, so much light, so much energy, so much positivity yeah. in your world, brother. And I'm just so grateful to know you and call you not just a colleague, but a friend. And by the way, I love your art. You know, I do. We collect yeah, it. I know you do. <laughs> so um, I love your name. You know, uh, we, <laughs> <laughs> sourdough, yeah. sourdough power. Yeah, right. But uh, and to be clear, let me be clear about something. I said we're running out of time. We're running out of time because I have to go pick up my daughter. Oh, <laughs> OK, it. so next time we'll go longer. I promise. Will you come back and do this again with of me? Of course I will. Of course. Fantastic. And I'm man. looking Thanks forward so to getting much. taking it's such those an pictures. Honor. Yes, yes, yes. So the deal is just a quick update. Our listeners won't care about this. I'll be vague because, you know, details don't matter. You'll know what I'm talking right. about. We're in the middle of a move. The new office is not uh, occupied yet. And as soon as the furniture gets in there and the art gets hung, you and I will go over there and get that photo because uh, that piece is perfect there. That's <laughs> what we've already said. It really is. But, you know, I still can't get over where it was at ABC because – she dealt yeah, with writers yeah. all the time, right? Writers. Yes, 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 yes. I can't yes, think of a better, a better image, a better message. <laughs> I'll share with the listeners a little bit just so that they understand kind of what we're talking about. So 
Obviously, we've celebrated and, and talked about your your sharks, these incredible characters that you've made that have so much life and personality. And, you know, there's different uh, per, you know, just different personas and things, but they're fun sharks. And you've created this piece, a rather large piece, sort of uh, built around this idea of Hollywood and the Hollywood sign and stuff. But you have your sharks in this piece, and it's sort of this implication of the Hollywood sharks. And, of course, the idea Eating that the Hollywood is, of course, out. comprised. Yeah, that's right. Eating them up, spitting them out. That Hollywood is run by sharks. Anyway, somebody that we know, uh, I bought this piece for somebody that we both know. <laughs> and and that piece was hanging in their office at ABC when they were, you know, in a very important position. And um, now the piece is going to be hung over at the Warner Brothers studio a lot. And so writers, producers, TV people, movie people come in and they see this Hollywood Sharks mural so by perfect, uh, painting man. by uh, Andre Maropolsky, right. and it is karmically yeah. perfect. It couldn't be any better. <laughs> One of the few <laughs> things that's right about the universe. Right, exactly. <laughs> it really is. It really is. Uh, my friend. Well, I'll tell you what, it's such a pleasure hanging out with you. We're going to sign off. Don't go anywhere. I wanted to say something before we actually part ways, okay. but uh, thanks for coming, Andre. You're the best, my friend. My total pleasure. Thank we'll you talk so much. soon. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Not Real Art Podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. Also, remember to subscribe so you get all of our new episodes. Not Real Art is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles. Our theme music was created by Ricky Peugeot and Desi DeLauro from the band Parlor Social. Not Real Art is created by We Edit Podcast and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Not Real Art. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating creative culture and the artists who make it.